Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Well I'm delighted to share a conversation that I had with Jill Fielding who is the founder and CEO of Fielding Financial and you might also recognize that name as she was also a secret millionaire a few years ago now. Jill is lovely and so easy to listen to She's not only funny and self-effacing, but also shares so many nuggets of information during the course of our conversation, including how money will never solve people's money problems, and to be decent to one another, among all things, as you're going to hear more of as as we uh, get into the conversation. But Jill also concludes with a reflection on what is important, which is to have life choice or life choices, and then to be able to live the life we were born to live. So let's hear exactly how that is possible right now then. But just before we get into it, uh, just want to signpost you. If you look at the show notes, just a little bit of time left and just a few tickets left to the pop-up mastermind event that I'm running in London on Monday the 12th of August. So literally just a couple of days to secure some of the last remaining tickets on that one. So so make sure you go and have a look and reach out to me if you are if you can't find the information, I'll, I'll point you in the right direction. But let's get on with the conversation that I had with Jill right now then. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. Well, here we are again on the Property Voice podcast and uh, I'm absolutely delighted to say I'm joined today by the wonderful Jill Fielding. Jill, hi, how are you doing? Are you well? I'm very well, Richard. Uh, in fact, I'm awesome. How are you? Awesome sounds good to me. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm very good. I'm very good. Thank you very much. Um, if I've got a slight frog in my throat, I hope it bears with us. But uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation. And thank you so much for joining joining me. We we're having a, a little chat before the chat, as it were. And uh, you were telling me about the setting that you're in. I'm not sure if you want to share that, but uh, it sounded nice anyway. But um, maybe we'll come. Yeah, no. It. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's a it's a lovely place. I'm I'm sitting in the middle of the Sussex Downs, overlooking the hillside and the greenery, and uh, there's something very calming about uh, being in a pleasant environment. Um, and I pretend this is where I work and this is where I sit. I don't go anywhere near an office or anything. So I think uh, it's absolutely beautiful, and uh, I love having the choice of being where I want to be, uh, as do you, Richard, too. I know. Indeed, yes. And I think that's that's part of what I'm hoping to get out of our conversation to some extent, because, you know, we're both to some extent and and, and in different ways and and different orders of magnitude achieved a level of success and and choice in in what we do. And um, I'm focusing on you, not me, but um, be great to share. Uh, Obviously, that's where you've got to today. But um, I'm trying to get to the journey where it all started and how you got to this point in time. So, be wonderful to have that that sort of insight if you could share with us. And what what I normally ask Jill at this point in the conversation is is just to, to get a bit of a backstory or background, just so that people can picture you know who you are and you know where you've come from and and, and the sort of journey, if you like. That might be a bit of a bit of a monologue, but um, if you wouldn't mind taking us through that, that would be fantastic. Uh, yeah, well, certainly. Um, I think anybody that's read anything I've written or seen me speak will know that uh, I'm actually a daft tart from the East End of London. I was born into extreme poverty in the East End of London. I was born in a two up, two down. Uh, there were five of us living in the house and, um, you know, it was a terrible environment. Uh, you know, no no bathroom, of course. Uh, I think I had a bath once in 1963 and again in 1970. So, you know, I, that wasn't a big thing for me. You know, outside toilet, uh, the house backed onto the sewers, uh, that backed onto the underground and that backed onto the docks. So I, I grew up surrounded by all kinds of chemicals and pollutants. So I think that's why I'm so tall, because I was well fertilised as a child with muck. Um, so that was the start in life. 
Um, I left school at the age of 16 by mutual consent. I didn't <laughs> like them and they certainly didn't like me. Um, and um, I went out and wreaked havoc for a few years. I then decided I needed to get myself educated. Um, <laughs> so uh, uh, that's what I did. I got myself educated, self-financed all the way through left university eventually uh, became a chartered accountant uh, then became big in the city you know always been connected with big financial institutions been a tax expert trust expert finance expert I'm financially regulated so I'm very sort of in the niche of financial services now um, and then about 22 years ago gave it all up to be an entrepreneur and start writing and doing what I currently do, which is running Fielding Financial and educating people. So it's been a, a, an extreme journey from, from one extreme end to another. So it really is a rags to riches story. Um, always been happy along the journey, I guess. But um, it's interesting that property has always formed a part of that journey for me uh, and has been the thread that ran throughout the all the changes in career uh, you know even when I was training as a chartered accountant I in the city I had property so uh, that's always been the the, the common theme um, so my backstory is a, a terrible one frankly and uh, I think if I was born today I would have been taken into care because I had no stability no support no no money uh, nothing um, and uh, I've ended up sitting in this lovely mansion really in the Sussex Downs overlooking the hills it's just glorious absolutely glorious so quite a journey sounds like quite a journey to be quite honest with you mm. um, it's interesting what you said about the the education uh, sort of school education um, and then obviously education has been a massive thing for you hasn't it um, mm. you decided yeah. after school that you should get educated and you also deliver a lot of education now as well so I'm kind of curious about about that transition. You know, what happened between school and then, you know, is there is there a difference in education, for example? Oh, good, good grief. Yes. I, I mean, first of all, I have to say education is fantastic. Any piece of education anybody can get, whether it be formal school educating or whatever it may be, uh, is worth doing. So I, I'm going to put that on the line, first of all. However, for me personally, schooling and school education did very, very little. Um, even training as a chartered accountant did very, very little. I did all the exams there and whatever, did very, very little. It was only when I started to educate myself for life and for money and financial freedom and, you know, all the things that I currently do, did it make any sense to me? Um, it never really made any sense, you know, learning how to dissect a frog or, or a learning uh, history, although I'm fascinated with history and I do know my kings and queens, etc., etc. It never seemed any point because there's no no outcome from it. There's no result. There's no production. Whereas as soon as I got into, I guess, adult education for life purpose and for purposeful things, it all made sense to me. Um, and, you know, now every second of education that I can either receive or deliver is is a second well worth spent. So um, it's interesting how formal education never really did it for me. But education, I am an educator uh, and I love education. Uh, but it, but for me, it has to be of purpose. And my particular niche happens to be money uh, and as a wealth creator and as an investor. Um, so, you know, I'd happily deliver that kind of education 24-7. Um, <laughs> love it. No, indeed. You know, I was, I was thinking um, I, I have a similar heart, I think, because um, I won't bore you with the story, but you know, essentially, I'll kind of dive, dive, digress slightly, Jill. Um, but essentially, I had a legacy goal of roughly 20 years ago, uh, which involved having, for want of a better description, some sort of educational foundation. And um, I, I, I gave it up, you know, in all honesty. I sacrificed that goal and uh, instead went for what I call a lifestyle, uh, lifestyle goal, lifestyle right. business, and I settled. I settled. But, um, you know, just short circuit a little bit. That's back on the table. OK, so that's very yeah. much part of uh, what I'm trying to do now. Maybe that's 20 years wasted in terms of that um, legacy goal. But I'm going to just push that to one side because I can't do a lot about it now. But. Um, yeah, but of course, everything that you've done in that time will be contributing some way or another, even if you don't realise it. And um, uh, for me, 
all of the education and like it's very similar to your legacy goal you're describing there but my life purpose and the reason I'm on this planet at all is to light the spark of financial possibility for as many people as I can get to in my lifetime uh, and that's what it's about for me is is keep speaking and educating and I know if I keep doing it I will light the spark for somebody somewhere and as a result they will change their life um, and I'm sure that's very similar to your own goal um, and of course for me it's about if I can educate people to uh, obtain the financial freedom which I know I can do because actually I, my, my view is financial freedom is a relatively easy goal to achieve, frankly. Um, and once you've got that, then you can do all the much more important stuff like leaving legacies, setting up foundations, curing ills, saving the planet, looking after your family. You know, everything that's much more important than just the just the money. Um, but for me, my my skill set is is educating people about money such that. And that is my life purpose. And if I can do that for other people, then they can achieve their life purpose. Now, whether that's financially driven or not, I, I, I don't know. But I know if you've got the money to pay your gas bill and feed the cat, then um, you can spend your time doing what's more important to you. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And, you know, I won't go back into my own purpose, etc. But it is there's a similar there's a similar thread for sure. Um, but where I was going to go with my point was about um, this this type of education that you're talking about, the financial education, the wealth creation, financial freedom, etc. Everything that you're involved in and I'm involved in to some, you know, there's an overlap between us. Um, it's it's not uh, available through, you know, the, the sort of normal academic institutions, generally speaking. And just to put a bit of context, I, I had a university degree which included um, elements of finances I worked in financial services. It was more business to business, um, to be fair. And yet I, you know, uh, and of course I had, I was at school and did, you know, accountancy and economics and stuff like that. But from a personal finance point of view, no one really teaches you this stuff, do they? <laughs> no, absolutely they don't. And there's many reasons for that. And of course, I've bashed my head against that particular brick wall many times. And in fact, I do do a a radio show for the BBC called Wealth Wednesdays and it's about broad financial education but there's a limit as to how far you can go both in formal education and in vehicles like the BBC and you know in the public arena because what the public and the government want you to know is basic stuff which is get a job and keep your head down and make sure that you pay your gas bill every month what the government and educational establishments formal ones are not interested in teaching you is how to break out of that cycle which is where you and I live we live in the entrepreneurial financial freedom arena where we have choice and uh, to, to have that choice you've got to be investing so you've got to be investing your money in property or shares or business or whatever at 10 percent 20 percent growth per year what the government and the formal edu educators want you to do is to put your money into an ISA and get one percent now, that's never going to make you financially free. But unfortunately, what schools, because I have been into some schools, actually, what they want you to teach their kids is how to get an ISA. Well, you know, I can teach you how to get an ISA, but that isn't going to float your boat. It's never going to change your life. It's not going to make any difference. But when you start veering into the, as well as having the ISA, why don't you invest in a buy to let or whatever it is you're going to do? then you stop being invited back to schools because you've gone off the wacky end of the scale. Because oh, really? what they want you to teach kids is to get a proper job and to be a lawyer and accountant, uh, you know, and do something that's very rigid where you're stuck in a hamster wheel day in, day out, um, spending everything you earn and, and not going any further. Um, and to break out of that uh, is very difficult. So, I mean, I do know financial education comes up on the national curriculum quite regularly, um, but it's only financial education in terms of get an ISA, um, which, as I've said, doesn't doesn't float anybody's boat long term. Well, we're, we're in the matrix, <laughs> you know, so to speak, mm. or on the hamster wheel. Um, now, mm. you, you managed to climb off the hamster wheel. Um, Clearly, and that's one of the reasons why I was curious to talk to you. So you, you mentioned that you 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 were you became a chartered accountant and you're working in the city. So that suggests to me that you were pretty strongly, you know, trained and educated and working with numbers and finances, etc. But what you also said is you started investing in properties back then. And um, so is 
just to take us back to that point in time. I'm sure that, you know, I, I've spoken to a number of people recently who've had what I would call successful careers in city or in business and things like that. But a number of them, you know, started to do different things in property, for example, investing. Now, is that what you were doing? Were you carving out money and saving or how did you go about getting involved in property back then? Well, first of all, I have to correct an assumption you've made there that oh. the financial life had absolutely nothing to do with my financial success whatsoever. Okay. Um, I was not financially uh, financially literate. Um, I started training as a chartered accountant, not being able to calculate a percentage. And to this day, I do not have maths GCSE. So first of all, I'm going to dispel that myth. <laughs> uh, so that that's not where my knowledge came from. What happened to me is that when I decided to get myself educated uh, and I got myself a couple of A-levels and decided to go to university. For some strange, bizarre reason, I thought you had to provide your own accommodation. So I worked for 15, 18 months doing five jobs, pulling pints and cleaning toilets and working as a barmaid and doing all of that to save up enough money for basically a 50% deposit on a property at the university where I'd chosen to go, which is the University of Sussex near Brighton. And that's how I first left London. I came down to Brighton, which is where I now live, um, with three and a half grand in my pocket in 1977 um, and bought myself a little house near the university because I thought that's what you did when you went to university. (laughs) So I was a completely accidental landlord. And of course, I I lived there for two or three weeks, realised I'd made a huge mistake, moved in with some mates in a flat in Brighton and rented the property out. And that's how I first became a landlady in 1977. It was purely by accident and you know, if I hadn't been so darn stupid, I'll, I'll you know, and, and if there'd have been somebody telling me how it all worked and that you lived in halls of residence and all that kind of stuff, um, I would never have done it. And um, so I bought that property in 1977 for about seven and a half grand. And I sold it when I left university in 1980 for nearly 30 because there was a real uptrend in the market. And, and basically, you know, I then sold that and bought another one and, and, and off I went. So it, all of the property investing, certainly at the beginning, was accidental and was totally unconnected to my, my other life. You know, I was still pulling pints and, you know, going out and about and cruising along the seafront in Brighton doing my own thing. Oh, and by the way, I had properties in the background. So they were unconnected activities, really. Yeah, I mean, I did make a false assumption. You're absolutely right. And I shouldn't have done because I'm, I told you my own story uh, that I worked in financial services, etc. And yet I didn't get it personally. So uh, it was it was, you know, poor to suggest that uh, yeah. you, you got <laughs> yeah. it there. But there we go. Um, but yeah. interesting, isn't it? Because you you, you say it was a, a sort of a mistake, if you like, or you didn't know any better. But actually, yeah. would you say that working the five jobs and, and saving up the 50 percent deposit effectively change your life. Yeah, it, it is interesting, Richard. And, you know, uh, and you're not the first person to think that chartered accountants know everything about money. But, uh, you know, because that's a fairly false, false assumption. Uh, what that does give you is discipline, I think. But, um, uh, yeah, if I'd have realised in retrospect that working me butt off for 18 months would set up my whole financial future, um I was about to say I would have enjoyed it more, but actually I did enjoy it at the time. Um, You know, I remember I was working as a hostess in a club bar in a leisure centre. And, uh, you know, I had the life of Riley then and really did enjoy it and just squirreled all my money away. I've always been very content to defer gratification with my money. So I did enjoy it. But as you say, that that 18 months set me up for life because that first property then became two, that then became four, that then became 54, that, you know, and, and off it went. Um, so as we know, the first one is the hardest and it's a pity that you have to do the first one first. You know, if you could do the first one last, it'd be easy, but <laughs> it isn't. So the first one's always the most difficult one. And I sort of fell into it. Um, and actually enjoyed the ride and uh, and have lived off it ever since, I think. Yeah, I mean, um, it's great to hear you talk, actually. And you're right, the first one is the hardest one, and there is, um, you just casually mentioned, you know, delayed gratification there as, um, you know, something as a, of a success principle, I guess. Um, if you want something better for your future, you have to give up something for, for from today, essentially, to make mm-hmm. that happen. Um you also talked about one turning into 54, and I don't know if 54 goes on, by the way. But so what, yeah. how did you convert one to 54 and, and whether it rolls on? What, did, what sort of strategies, what sort of uh, methods did you follow uh, from a property point of view? Um, well, 
I didn't have any methodology and I think that would be my tip for everybody starting out nowadays is that I blundered about for 20 years Richard not really knowing what I was doing from 1977 I wasn't a millionaire until 1997 because at the time there weren't places like this there weren't podcasts there weren't financial educators uh, and I was just blundering around for 20 years just committing a suicide you know I sold that first property and I thought I'd found the right idea, so I, I liked it, so I bought a second property, and I made a complete haulix of the second one, uh, because what I hadn't done is checked the demand for the property and so on. And, and it took me nearly 10 years to realize there was a difference between the property you buy for income and the property that you buy for capital. But um, so the first 10 years, I made about 100,000, so it made very little. And then, then I cracked the income and capital thing. And what I did was every time I bought one, I bought two, one for income and one for capital. Um, and then, you know, very quickly, that became a million quid. And then from there on in, it's grown and grown. Um, and to, to summarize what the strategy was early days and is still the strategy today really is first of all you have to generate income because unless you've got money coming in every month you don't have time freedom uh, and it's only when you have time freedom that you can be a great investor because when you've got time you can then do capital projects and developments and conversions and all the big stuff that needs time and attention so first priority for me was always to get checks coming in every month because you don't go broke banking checks every month and as soon as you're banking checks every month that liberates you in your time um, and then you can leap off uh, and that's what I did so all of my first strategies were always really about income generation and then once I I've got uh, I've got a complete portfolio that is HMOs and buy to lets which are standard that everybody would recognize and they just sit there and I haven't touched that little portfolio for 11 years now because they they generate enough money to feed me and the kids uh, every month and you know and it's just sat there and parked and I don't need to do anything and then from that I've gone on and um, you know I've got maybe another 250 units that are you know what people would considered to be bigger developments and so on so you know if we look at just HMOs as a simple simple investment structure I've got standard HMOs in my feed the family portfolio um, and then I've got what's called category D HMOs I've got about 150 units of category D HMOs that are in my what I call my fancy pants portfolio um, and they are where you hand the keys over to the government and they let the properties to asylum seekers and spies and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, yeah. So that, that, there's an underlying thread of income that goes throughout all of my investing always. Um, start with income. Uh, my first portfolio is all income. And then my second grander portfolio is split 50-50 capital and income, I would say, but still with the income thread there. So income from rental, uh, you mentioned predominantly on the family portfolio, HMOs and buy-to-lets. Um, yep. um, now, it would cost some money, obviously. You know, property is a capital-intensive industry, uh, very much so. So how did you go about growing? You know, you said you've got roughly 250, I don't know if it's still going, but 250 units. Mm -hmm. um, how did you fund it all? Well, I have to say, uh, and this is going to sound terribly awful but it was easy to do that um when i bought the first one i mean i slogged for that time to save up three thousand pounds uh to buy the first one but of course when i sold the first one that generated the deposit for the next one and then you remortgage as they go up in value or you do them up and that provides a deposit for two and three and four uh, and in all honesty i've put very little money into my entire portfolio um over time and of course every time I have needed money it's been a case of remortgaging something in the portfolio and although that's pretty tight at the moment or has been for the last you know well decade really mm. there, there's generally some fat in some land somewhere or another um, and of course the other thing that I've got used to doing is you know sharing money angel financing joint ventures that kind of stuff um, so in all honesty raising the finance has not been difficult and I, I was very fortunate in that I started you know so long ago because when I first started you could remortgage same day I remember buying you know in the sort of early noughties buying two properties a week on credit card 
you know it was you know it was obscene the amount of money that you, that was available and it was only when the credit crunch came in sort of 2008 did all of those things stop um or become much tighter so i was very fortunate in that i built up my portfolio when people just chucked money at you for spelling your name right uh you know and so i was very fortunate then and of course Nowadays, if people are listening to us now, they'd say, oh, you know, well, that's not fair, is it really? But uh, I think what we have today is different things. So, for example, I had to work 18 months to get the deposit. Nowadays, you can get the deposit with a phone call because you can get it on a credit card. You can get it from an angel. You can get it from a joint venture. You can get it off a lease option. You know, there's loads of different um, methodologies and processes you can use to, to, to leverage and get funds. Um, you know, we teach something called the cash clock at Fielding Financial, and that's 12 ways of raising money, and mortgage isn't on there. You know, we teach 12 different ways of raising money uh, that don't include mortgages. Um, because there is so much more creativity in the marketplace now. Back in the day when I was started, there was one type of mortgage. It was a repayment mortgage. Um, and that's your lot. And you had to pay the deposit yourself. So no choice, no creativity, um, just slog, really. Yeah. So I mean, different funding. So, yeah. No, you. I mean, you kind of preempted where I was going to go with my question, obviously, because yeah. what, what, how you started, where, when you started, and and the, and the methods you used, um, you know, not necessarily directly applicable today. But I think the key takeaway from that is um, we're in an adaptive marketplace, aren't we? So we we need to sort of change and adapt as the marketplace is uh, marketplace changes and adapts. Uh, we, we, we shouldn't necessarily stand still. And it sounds to me that you're not standing still and you're certainly not teaching people, um, you know, to do it exactly as you did in 1977, 87, 97 or even 2007 yeah, yeah. for that matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, you know, uh, you know, I'm I'm an old bag now, really. So I've been <laughs> in this marketplace for 40 years and I've seen every fad come and go from back to backs and, you know, sale and lease backs and you know all the things and all the different financing and funding processes um and of course that gives you huge resilience doesn't it and flexibility because to be honest there isn't much that could happen in the property market that i haven't seen a variant of before uh, and that gives you flexibility it gives you a toolkit so that you can take learnings from your past and uh, apply it to the future but um, I always say, I mean, you can't stand still at all. You know, even if you're on the right road, you'll still get run over if you just sit there. You know, so sitting still is not an option for anybody in this marketplace. You have to keep moving and growing and, and flexing as you go. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. And um, I think I think more to the point. So if we've got people probably listening to this podcast who uh, don't own any properties yet, or maybe they've got one, maybe it's their own home, or maybe they've got a buy to let. And they might be thinking, blimey, this is hard. How do we go about this? And um, I think just extrapolating a little bit from what you're saying, um, there is a way, right? You just talk about 12 ways of raising money. That's, that's something you teach. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think we – and, of course, it's very easy to say – do as I say, not do as I did, you know, because and I always think, you know, I've made loads of mistakes so that other people don't don't have to do it. But I always say to our new students, even if you've got nothing, what you do is you start with the end in mind. And the first step is identify how much you need to feed your family. So say it's £2,000 a month, just as an example. If you start with that end in mind, then what you do is you build a portfolio to generate that £2,000 per month. And that is as far as you can conceive and understand as your first step strategy. Uh, and the quicker you do that, the better. And that you know, and, and what we do is we teach people to create a pyramid um, of balance uh, and on our standard portfolio, that would be three HMOs and eight buy to lets. Now, that would generate far more than £2,000 a month um, in, you know, to bring the two examples together. But that's what we teach people to do. And we teach them to start at the buy to let tier. Uh, and although that won't really float anybody's financial boat for very long, what it does do is it gives people experience. and It gives them a tick in the box with fund providers and that kind of stuff. Uh, but to get them up to two or three HMOs fairly quickly, so that you become financially free and then you can pause and say, OK, what's step two on the strategy? So start with the end in mind. How much do I need per month to live and to feed the cat? Um, and, and that's what, as far as I think most people can get to in stage one. 
Yeah, Steve, Steve, uh, Stephen Covey, of course, isn't it? Uh, starting with the end yeah. in mind, uh, very much agree. Yeah. You, you kind of um, you gave me a cue in one of your answers there earlier, and I'm going to go back to it because I wanted to talk to you. Yeah. Normally, we talk about things that went well and things that didn't go so well. You've had a lot of experience, Jill, um, and you said that you made some mistakes that you know other people can learn from. Do you want to share some of those highs and lows of over the over the years? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I, the answer is, in all honesty, the lows have never registered with me very much, and and I think that's that's an important learning for people. Um, there's ups and there's downs in this market for sure. Don't get stuck by the downs and don't be too overbuoyed up by the ups. You know, always try and even out and find a middle ground. And for me, a mistake is only a mistake if you stop there. Um, if you then turn it into something else, um, then you know it moves on and becomes becomes part of a, an important strategy. So I talked about the second house I bought. I made a complete mistake with that one because I bought a house thinking that was it was going to be an income generator but actually it was a it should have been a capital growth property because it was a family home on a little estate there was no demand for sort of tenancies that kind of stuff so I made the first mistake of misunderstanding strategy so that was the big mistake but of course you learn from that uh, and uh, I, I, I sat down and after I bought the first two properties the first one was successful and the second one wasn't. The only difference I could see between the two properties was that the first one was semi-detached and the second one was detached. So that was my first conclusion, was that semi-detached properties worked as an investment vehicle. I mean, how dumb was I? But it was the only thing that I could identify at the time as being the differentiating factor. It was only later that I saw it was in a slightly different area with tenant opportunities and so on. So, you know, that would be a mistake. I remember another thing in the sale and lease back days. I don't know if you remember this far back, but mm -hmm. at the time, uh, it was during the time when there was a lot of repossessions. And um, what we investors did was we rescued people from repossession. Mm -hmm. So uh, I took one particular couple. Uh, they had a property. They'd got into difficulty. Their house was about to be repossessed. I stepped in paid the mortgage off for them. And what you did is you paid the mortgage off. They left their property and went up the pub for a couple of hours. You changed the locks. Um, and then they came back into their own home, having signed a, 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 an AST and a short, short hold tenancy agreement on the way back into their house. And that you kept, it meant that these people could stay in their own house. So in, on the surface, it seemed like a complete win-win. The people were rescued. They stayed in their own house. I got a property that was an investment. However, in this particular case, uh, the couple went up the pub for a couple of hours and I changed the locks and they went back into their own home. Uh, and this was a middle-aged couple, by the way. The next day, they completely, completely trashed the property. They even pulled the sinks off the walls. Oh. And, um, yeah, I, and uh, I remember going back to the property thinking, oh, well, that was an interesting learning experience and a mistake. <laughs> uh, and then I thought, well, actually, uh, no, it wasn't a mistake because um, – Obviously, they were emotionally traumatized by the, the whole incident. And so I sort of understood. Not, I didn't understand their point of view, but I could see where they were coming from. But secondly, um, my intention was always to refurbish it and, you know, do it up a bit when they left anyway. And they actually saved me a huge job because they stripped the house for me. So I didn't have to pay for it. So that was a bonus. And secondly, it was all tax deductible. So, so when I, you know, it's funny how you can view these mistakes and the highs and lows as, as either a positive or a negative and although initially that one felt like a negative when I sat back and thought about it I thought wow you know they've saved me a lot of time a lot of work a lot of money um, and I've got the house ready to go so it wasn't a mistake at the end of the day because I was continuing the journey and going to do something else with it so um, you know there's been lots of little stories like that where houses have you know, something's happened uh, that I thought was a mistake. There was another property that turned into a high that I, I, I rented out to a, a single older gentleman in Tewkesbury, actually, in Gloucestershire. Um, and uh, he'd only been in it probably a month or two. And I got a phone call from uh, his brother who lived in South Africa saying, I understand that you've rented this property out to my brother. Um, 
and I know you've only just bought it because that's what he's told me, but I want to buy it for him as a birthday present. Um, and um, and he offered me way more than I'd paid for it two months after I'd paid for it. You know, all of these things happen during a property investor's journey uh, that that just make it all so interesting. You know, they're all the things that I love, the, the sort of human interest stories, I think. So lots and highs and lots and lows. But um what you do is you enjoy, enjoy the highs and ignore the lows, I think, for me, um, and just keep plodding relentlessly towards the strategic plan. Um, and then they just become incidental stories along the journey and they don't sort of change you emotionally. I think that's the learning from that is don't let these peaks and troughs change you emotionally because otherwise you'll give up. No, I've been listening really intently to what you're saying. And I, I, again, I totally agree. I mean, I'm trying to practice the uh, stoic philosophy myself at the moment, which is all about what you say in a way. It's about just maintaining an equilibrium, not getting too carried away at either extreme of, of emotions. Um, but, but did you do something specifically to you know, train your mind maybe to see positives out of negatives and not get too carried away when people are trashing your property? Did you do something or did it was it just is it just natural to you, Jill? I, I think there's an element of it's natural. But what the, the way that I've taken the emotion out of my investing is to be um, very calculating. And, and that might sound emotionless, um, which in some senses it is. But again, we teach everybody uh, property education in terms of formulas. So there's a formula to how you find the area. There's a formula to how you find the property. There's a methodology in calculating the return. There's a target rate of return. So everything is evidence-based and strategically based. And when you've got a methodology and a process like that, all you've got to do is to go through the worksheets and get the ticks in the boxes and then you buy it. There's none of this. Oh, should I buy it? Oh, should I not? Have I got to put a pink cushion in? You know, what happens if the dog, you know, nothing. All it is, is does it get tick, 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 tick? Does it get four out of seven? Does it get five out of seven? You know, what does it do? Bang. And you buy it. Um, and I think that. um once you do that, that that becomes a very positive experience because it does because most people procrastinate. They dither, they am and are, they don't know where, they, where to invest, what's the right place to go, what's the right property to invest in. Um, and the way that I've developed my property investing and the way that we teach now is a formula. Just follow the recipe and the outcome is a cake. Just follow the formula and the outcome is an investment. And that is so much easier to do than dithering and worrying and fretting and panicking and, you know, your blood pressure going up and whatever. And as a consequence, I think it all becomes so much more positive. So it's a combination, I think, of mindset and and activity. Yeah, I, I follow similar sort of principles. I mean, I was just thinking about some of my own stories. I've had a tenant die on me. I've had a property that I had a nine-month initial void. You know, it took to evict them after not paying what yeah, yeah. it on. I had a property that burnt down, you know, and, and I think it's um, – in fact, the property that burnt down, I have a, a private investor partner in that deal, and I was speaking to them. I said, you know, better let you know the property's burnt down, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and she and, and she was saying to me, "You sound really calm." And I said, "Well, I I am. You know, I made sure no one was hurt. That was my first priority. Yeah. But my second priority was just to make sure my insurance was in place, which of course, <laughs> which of course it was. And then it's just a process, you know. Um, I just need to go through a process, and hopefully the insurance company is going to play ball. But I'm not going to get too wound up about it. I'm, you know, if they decide not to, what can I do about it? I mean, I, there are things I can do about it. But you know, it's just just yeah. trying to keep an even keel. And um, I yes. also have similar things to you, like uh, a scorecard for my investments, and I review my portfolio you know you know periodically but it is this case isn't it of just trying to not get carried away because it's where, yeah. where i'm going with it is it when my very first property was back in the mid 90s and um, it was an accidental landlord situation much like you described and um i i moved away from home and i rented out my former home and i let it out to people who said they want to stay there long term and then within a couple of months, I was away from home. There was a, a massive water leak and significant damage. Uh, and then a few months later, the tenants left. So I lost all my rental profit for the year and those long-term tenants left. And I actually did sell that property, Jill, I will confess to you, um, at that point in time. And it took me, ooh, I'm trying to think how long it was, probably 15 years before I got back on again. So 
I let that yeah. uh, affect me emotionally at that point in time. And I, you know, if ever I want to beat myself up, I just look at what that property is worth today. But um, I think right. I think it's just trying to keep on that even keel. And um, but it t- maybe takes us into a little bit of what I call principles and values of how you operate. Um, yeah. You're kind of giving a lot of clues as we're speaking, but how do you operate? What are your principles and values, Joe? Um, Well, first of all, there's the life mission, which starts at the very top, which is to light the spark for people. Uh, The second tier down is the core values, which are honesty, integrity and trust. And then um, next to that is transparency. So anything that I do, the company does, has to adhere to those values. Um, Everybody has to be in integrity. Um, uh, You know, you don't go broke banking checks you you don't go broke sharing something 50 50 i'd rather have 50 percent of something than 100 percent of nothing so we're a we're a sharing caring community uh group of investors so that sits neatly in there mm-hmm. um i think i think if you are a, a a poor property owner then very quickly uh you will be found out and people won't use you um so i think agents and tenants like decent decency um and i wouldn't say that every property has to be of the standard where i would be happy to live in it because in most cases i wouldn't i wouldn't want to live in an hmo for example uh but i think you have to be decent to people and you have to be fair and if you want them to pay their rent on time will you have to repair the property on time i absolutely hate it when you know landlords don't bother to respond to maintenance requests for a fortnight and that kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, you know, I wouldn't like it if a tenant waited another two weeks to pay their rent. So I don't think they should have to wait for two weeks for me to maintain the property. So I think there's a certain equity uh, in it all um, and uh, and a decency. So uh, starts with honesty, integrity and trust and then goes all the way down. Yeah, I'm just nodding away as you're talking, to be honest with you. So, yeah, no, yeah, totally agree. So, you know, how can anybody disagree with those? But unfortunately, people people have maybe uh, statements of what they, they say they are and, and then behavior, which doesn't necessarily reflect that. So I think this uh, congruency and authenticity, if I can get my words out, um, is really important. So thank you for sharing that. And very simple as well. That's uh, one, one good point. Good. Um, I'm going to maybe ask you about the future in a second, but I can't not have a conversation with you, Jill, and and not mention not being so secret about being a secret millionaire anymore. (laughs) Just tell me about that experience. What was that like? Oh, that was the weirdest experience. I mean, obviously, I'm very glad that I did it, uh, but I wouldn't do it again um, because that was tough. That was really tough. Um, for, For me, what they did was they sort of, well, basically, the producer just phoned me up in my home office one day um, and I said no, 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 no to doing that programme. But eventually they ground me down and they took me back to the east end of London and dumped me in the east end of London. And once I sort of found my feet, I was uh, very happy there again, working in a little cafe, doing what I'd always done in the past. So I, to some extent, I was sort of back on my home turf and I was very content with that. And I found some people to give uh, money away to and I was pleased that I did that what I I don't think I'd appreciated at the time was that um, I didn't in retrospect I think to myself was it fair to those people because they were they were busy going among, among their normal lives and then suddenly this woman turns up with a big checkbook and and sort of gives them money that they didn't ask for so I I, I, I did feel uncomfortable about that but as a consequence, what I've done is I've start, I'm still in touch with all of my people. So, you know, the people I met the during the program sort of 12 years ago, I'm still in touch with, you know, I still visit, you know, the, you know, they come here, we, we meet for lunch uh, and I've continued to mentor them because I didn't feel I could just zip in and give people a check and then run away and just let them deal with the fallout. So um, that was the, the, the bit that I found uncomfortable about the programme. But I absolutely loved it. I mean, going back to the East End of London and working in a cafe and meeting people and being on the streets and, and being poor, even if it was a false poverty, um, I absolutely loved it. <laughs> really did. Yeah, I was curious as to how that might have unraveled. I didn't realise they did it the way you've just described. I thought you might have a bit more choice, actually, in, you know, 
where you go etc but um oh no no they tell you nothing they, they put you in a van late at night and they kick you out of the van and say you're living there and the the tv crew disappear to the local hotel and you're left as a gibbering wreck in some place i didn't even know where i was you know oh, really? they tell you to bring basically one change of clothes and nothing i mean they pushed me into a hovel i had a bed but no bed linen no kettle i had a saucepan where i could boil water but nothing i mean certainly not when i made it because i was one of the first people ever to make the program uh, they really really do keep you poor and they would only let me earn 10 pounds a day uh-huh. so and, and if i earned any more that because sometimes i did double shift in the cafe they take the money away from me because they absolutely want to keep you on the bread line um so yeah that uh-huh. was interesting but um uh me being me i saved most of my earnings anyway and uh, and then invested it but that's another story for another uh-huh. time <laughs> well it, it is but i think there's so many recurring themes in what you're talking about and i just want to go back to what you just said about some of the people that you helped on that uh, that experience with the bbc and you talked about you couldn't just give them a check and then leave them to that, that you had to mentor them. And I, I've just picked that out because for me, when you hear words like that, you know, um, they, they're just sort of a big signal about about money management and wealth management, wealth creation. Um, I think if you often hear about people who win a lottery or something and then go broke, you yeah. know, not so long later. So um, is that's also part of your life mission by the sound of it as well. It's kind of teach people to fish not just give them a fish is that- yeah it's not only that it, it's it's understanding how money works you're absolutely right about the lottery winners uh, and that's that's true but i know this for absolutely certain money will never solve people's money problems because if they've got money problems in the first place it's because there's a behavior or a belief that's wrong about money and for some reason like a lottery winner will fritter it away and contrive to lose it all and they'll self-sabotage the only way you can teach people to be financially free is to educate them about money and then whether they've got five pounds or five thousand pounds or five million pounds then they will always be okay financially because the amount of money that people need is actually relatively small um but if you educate them to behave appropriately with it i mean money all it is money is just pieces of paper with pictures of dead people on the back that's all it is and and people get over emotional about money um and uh, because i never had any as a child i don't think i was ever particularly bothered by it and i think that was you know one of the fortunate parts of my background so um money will never ever solve people's financial problems education solves people's financial problems without a doubt right and then again so so many uh, wise words so maybe just looking a bit to the future as a couple of questions i maybe just want to start to look towards a close um one is um the current market so i'm talking from a property angle particularly and in fact i'm sure that you probably don't just tell people to put all their eggs in one basket or one asset class i imagine you might say that but um uh, I'll let you answer that, obviously, in a second. But what what sort of tips and advice might you give people you know, who are maybe starting out or are early stages of their journey right now? Yeah, well, well there's a, a couple of things there. First of all, there are only three ways to become financially free. There are only three real asset classes. Uh, one is land and property that we're familiar with. One is trading, and that tends to be shares, but could be commodities or Bitcoin or whatever you want to trade. And the third one is owning your own business. Now, if you look at these stats over time, um, you know, since the Doomsday Book and look at the Office of National Statistics for small enterprises, etc., you'll see rather bizarrely that all three of those asset classes increase by slightly over 10% per year over time. So first of all, my first tip to people is eventually get into all asset classes. It doesn't matter whether you start in property or whatever. So for example, I started investing in shares first. I bought my first shares when I was 18. I bought my first property when I was 19. Um, And for my children, the second they were born, I started to buy shares for them every month. Um, So, um, but with small amounts of income. So so what I did with with myself, I'd pay, you know, I'd buy five pounds a month. With my children, I did 50 pounds a month. Now you can't really buy a property with 50 pounds a month, but it was something that was going on along side um, so shares and property have always been side by side for me and then in the last 20 years I've added business to that to that threesome um, so that I'm in all asset classes so um, you know that's my approach to, to wealth creation uh, and that's very important at a time like now with you know our uncertain political situation that we have in the UK um, because the market has gone static it's gone uncertain 
-hmm. So, you know, when when we go back to our formulas that we've talked about, if you look at the five criteria for a rising market, which is things like interest rates and demand and so on and employment levels, they're all in perfect position for a rising market. Interest rates have never been so low. Employment has never been so high. Demand has never been so high. But the market is static because it's being overridden at the moment by emotional uncertainty because of the political situation. And my current view for what it's worth, and it's just a personal view, is as soon as we get this darn nonsense over, Mm -hmm. then the market will then pick up quite quickly because all the underlying economic factors are very strong. So, as I say, demand is high, interest rates are low, employment is high, et cetera, et cetera. So we're in a very odd market at the moment where all of the tangible facts and figures are positive, but we've got this emotional, intangible uncertainty that's holding the market static. So it's holding the market static, but um, are you static? And would you encourage other people to remain static at this point in time? Um, I'm, I'm never static, um, but uh, I, because there's always a strategy that you can do for whatever market you're in. Um, so, you know, when the market is going down in terms of capital value, that's the time to buy income generators. And then when it's going up, I, I do the reverse. So so I flex my strategy, whatever's going on. And at the moment, strangely enough, um, I'm diversifying into slightly different things like um, I'm jointly investing in a a marina at the moment and some boats. I'm also investing in a small boat boutique hotel. So they're not the bread and butter HMOs and capital projects that we would know in terms of property, but they are still purchasing a property type asset. Um, So I'm I'm diversifying into slightly different markets. Now, I've got the luxury of doing that because I've got money and experience and whatever. but the, the, the basic principles still hold true, whether the market's going up, down or sideways. Um, you just have to make sure that you're doubly sure on your evidence, I think, at the moment, if you're an inexperienced investor. So, no, 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 there's always something to be done, whatever the market's doing. Nodding away again, nodding away. <laughs> <laughs> so I think um, we're drawing to a close. I don't know if you've got any sort of uh, general tips, hacks or learning or even resources you want to point people to towards, Jill. I know that you've written a few books, for example, and uh, I'll let you speak. But um, do you want how many pointers for people who perhaps are listening to this so they can go and hear more about it and get some get some education? <laughs> Good. Uh, well, obviously, we've got loads and loads of resources at fieldingfinancial.com. So www.fieldingfinancial.com. There's loads of stuff you can download, join the forums, whatever. We've got loads of special offers at the moment because it's the 10th anniversary of that particular business being started. So, you know, if anybody wants to join in, listen in, we've got loads of free resources, lots of places you can go. So please connect with us. We'd love to see you. And then in, in terms of, um, you know, tips, I would always say, uh, again, Start with the end in mind, get a strategy, collect your evidence, make sure that you're doing this in an unemotional way um, and you're doing it professionally. I think uh, there are so many amateur landlords out there with one or two little buy-to-lets that are too emotional about it. They're not educated. They're not doing it properly and they fail and make a, a, a muck up of it and they lose their money and they lose their confidence because they don't have this professionalism. For me, property investing is a profession um, uh, and I believe that Fielding Financial are the only organisation in the UK that actually offer uh, a diploma. So we are AQA accredited to provide a property investor's diploma, just like you're going to university, because I think it's a profession that we all should take seriously. So I guess that's my final word. Take it seriously. And then it provides your financial freedom forever. Well, it sounds like a fitting way to end, actually. Yes. Take it seriously. Be professional. Oh, I, I, I didn't actually realize you had a, a formal qualification. That's, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and it would help people, I'm sure to uh, to pursue yeah. that angle um I, I think it's been fascinating ch- chatting to you jill i i, I want to give you back some time um i think you know, i could talk forever it sounds like when we were talking earlier you you said you could as well but it's been insightful and i really really appreciate you sharing with our audience today i don't know if you have any final oh. thoughts at all but uh, if there's anything you wanted to say but um maybe let the passing the parting words with you uh, it's been absolutely wonderful, Richard. I've really enjoyed it. And it's made me realise uh, what's important. Uh, and what's important is life choice uh, and being able to live the life that you were born to do. And that tends to come when you've got money paying the gas bill. So please, everybody, uh, live the life you were born to live.
Perfect. Thanks, Jill, so much. Really appreciate it. Bye for now. Thank you. Wasn't that wonderful? I really enjoyed talking to Jill, you could probably tell. Um, and, you know, just the, the stark contrast, if you like, between her outlook on the, uh, you know, with the view over the Sussex Downs and not going anywhere in, uh, anywhere near an office to how she started out in life. Uh, as she called herself, I think I got it right, as a daft tart <laughs> from, east, from the east end of London, born into poverty. Um, so such a contrast. And so it really was a rags to riches story, as uh, she outlined. And, um, you know, there were so many takeaways, I think. One of the biggest and one of the earliest one, of course, was all about education. We had kind of a couple of minutes that we spoke about education, but not necessarily, I mean, she said all education is worthwhile. But I think uh, for in Jill's case in particular, it was when she stepped out into sort of wealth education and financial education that she really started to understand things uh, and taught herself that uh, as she progressed. Um, I like this idea of a, of a life's purpose. Do you know what yours is? Jill's was to light the spark, or is to light the spark of financial possibility in people. And I, I haven't actually heard her radio show. I might tune into that. Wealth Wednesdays on the BBC. Sounds, sounds like it'd be really interesting. She's quite a character, as you could tell. Um, uh, there were lots of things to take away, starting in 1977, almost by accident, saving hard for a 50% deposit on a house that she didn't really need to buy to go to university in. But of course, that set her off, didn't it? And she talked about making quite a lot of mistakes and not really knowing what she was doing for at least the first 10 years, if you know, 10 years of, of being in property. But then afterwards, you know, 20 years in becoming a millionaire has gone on quite significantly after that. Um, she talked about squirreling away money or saving and delayed gratification, another success principle. And, um, and, and the idea of really generating an income first to get financial freedom or rather to buy time freedom so that you can actually then work on what's important to you in life. She's talked about the difference in an income strategy and a capital strategy, of course. And, um, and, and things were different when she started back in the, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, for example. Um, you know, thing, money was easy to come by, but money's still easy to come by. It's just different, as she talked about. I think she made a reference to the cash clock. We've told different ways of raising money. Um, I guess you could say that Jill's seen a lot and she's got this uh, toolkit, as she calls it, and she's very flexible. But she's very clearly started with the end in mind, Stephen Covey principle, isn't it? One of the uh, habits of successful people, highly successful people, as indeed Jill is. And starting with the bottom of the pyramid with a foundation of buy to lets and HMOs to give an income. That's how she teaches things. And to go from there, really. And um, I really like what she said about not, you know, not getting overly excited with the highs and not getting overly despondent and depressed with the lows. Um, and you know, she builds on that, doesn't she? She talks about being calculating and following a methodology, evidence-based, you know, using formulas. Very, very, as she say, it sounds cold um, potentially, but it's just to stop us getting into trouble. And I thought that was really, really important to have these sort of core principles uh, and criteria that we make investment decisions by. She talked about having clear, you know, uh, principles and values. She's got her life mission, which is lighting the spark and core values, very simplistically, honesty, integrity, trust, and of course, transparency from a business point of view. And I like what she said about being a decent landlord as well. So many people, they just think about the money and they don't think about the people. Uh, so we're providing a service, we're providing homes for people to live in. So I'm very much resonated with that. In fact, I've resonated with a lot of what Jill had to say. Uh, she talked, of course, about the secret millionaire uh, experience, which I you know, was fascinated by. Really, also really intrigued me about what she's saying about, uh, well, money not uh, solving people's problems and the fact that she's now mentoring some of the people that she uh, met and encountered and, in fact, gave money to during the secret millionaire uh, program. Uh, because, it, as she said, it isn't just about giving somebody some money because it won't fix their problems. It's all about education, fixing people's financial problems. Um, she's obviously a great believer in that, as indeed am I. The three asset classes, land and property, trading, usually stocks and shares, but it can be other assets such as commodities, and our own business, of course, that she you know, it recommends all of us to get involved in eventually. I think she did say that, eventually. And, uh, you know, glimpsing towards the future, um, you know, the uncertainty of Brexit, et cetera, et cetera, will, will fade away. But um, 
she's never standing still but she does say um, always you know have the end in mind have a clear strategy make evidence-based decisions then act unemotionally and professionally uh, and of course I'm just going to finish with her concluding comment which is what is important is to have a life choice and then be able to live the life we were born to live so it was a fascinating conversation I hope you'll agree um, it was worth you know spending the time investing in this particular one and I'm really glad to have a female amongst the uh, property heavyweights that we shared in this uh, in this series I'd love to have had more um, but Jill uh, more than weight makes up for it I'm sure you agree but there we go. That's it for this week. I just want to draw a line under that and just point you to really to how you can find out more. The the um, show notes can be over at the website, found over at our website, which is thepropertyvoice.net. Of course, if you want to talk to me about anything from today's show, you can uh, email me, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net. All of Jill's contacts are going to be in the show notes as well, so look out for that. And I guess all that's left to say is thank you very much for listening once again this week. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.